You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Welcome to our Decodable Text series. In this series, we will consider what the research says about decodable texts and how educators can effectively use decodable texts in classroom instruction. Today, we'll be talking to a decodable text researcher. We received so many questions from our listeners about decodable texts, so we brought in expert Heidi Ann Mesmer for this important conversation. We'll learn what the research says and how to practically apply it with some do's and don'ts. Let's jump in. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we are kicking off our series on decodable texts. We will talk with who we think is an epic researcher on this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Epic. Yeah, so we're here with Heidi Ann Mesmer, um, who I told her I I can never see something written about decodable text or decodability without seeing Mesmer somewhere in a citation. <laughs> so I think Epic might might be a, a good uh, description. Yeah. But she is currently a, an assistant professor at Virginia Tech. She conducts research and teaches literacy courses to graduate students. Um, she is a former elementary school teacher, and she's been studying Yay. beginning reading materials and text difficulties since. 1999. Oh, you're uh, Heidi, and you're partying like it's 1999 <laughs> with the <laughs> beginning. Reading yeah, and, and 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 actually, I'm I'm a full oh, so I'm a full sorry. professor, Melissa. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's it's quite a climb for those yeah, those of us is, in the in the academic world. So you've got to update your Google Scholar, I mean, Heidi, Ann. <laughs> That's, is yeah. that the issue? Okay, thanks. I'll let it Thank you. Full professor. You deserve it. Oh, well, we're so glad that you're here. And I think before we jump into this conversation, it might be helpful to define some important terms that we're going to use quite often today, which are decodable and decodability. So Heidi Ann, you're the expert. Tell us about what these terms mean. Right. So um, I'll, I'll also say there are lots of great epic uh, text researchers, researchers <laughs> out there. One of them happens to be Freddie yes. Hebert, who, um, if you all don't know, is textproject.org. So in terms of what we mean when we say decodable um, and, and then the word decodability is that the idea with a decodable is that you are putting into the text. It's really a focus on the words in text. And actually, text is more than just words. Text is words, it's sentences, and then it's even larger units, discourse units or paragraphs, chapters, etc. But decodability really relates specifically to the individual words. And it is uh, a text that is designed to match what the reader has been taught in their phonics lessons. So we call that feature lesson to text match. So if you have a, a phonics lesson where you're doing, for example, long E patterns like E, E and E, A, then when you go to read a book, you're going to see words like beat and feet. And you might see words like um meat or, or other meal, other words that don't exactly rhyme. And so there's this 
coordination between your phonics and then what you read in text. And the idea there obviously is to transfer or to generalize what you've learned in a phonics lesson so that you can apply it. So that one feature is called lesson to text match. And the second feature is um, some kind of an attention to uh, high frequency words. And high frequency words are those words that are so common in English that you can't possibly write a (laughs) sentence without them. So if you think about the word the, for example, it's not completely regular in that the E in that word will represent a schwa sound or will represent the long E. And then there's that TH um, digraph. And typically we don't teach those patterns early on. However, you can't read without the word the. It actually um, in text um, is about 7% of all wow. words. So if you just counted all <laughs> the words, crazy. It's, the is 7%. <laughs> That's a great yeah, fun and you know, fact. The funny thing is, I, <laughs> it is a fun fact. And it's really interesting because I recently did a study looking at passages on a digital repository, and I actually replicated that, that fact too. So if, it's still <laughs> true. The point is, the, the point is that... Um, you have to attend to that. And so highly, you know, decodable text will also introduce at the earlier levels, the more frequent words, and then kind of build up through the Dolch list or the Fry list or whatever list you want. So that when you look at the back of a decodable, it'll tell you the high frequency words that are there. It'll tell you the, the, le- the match. Um, I'll say too, that another way that people have defined decodability in past and in present. There's a wonderful new study by um, Saha et al. um, that basically looks at what we would call the transparency of the spelling or the transparency of the orthography. And by that, I mean words that have um, a a simple one-to-one match, like the word hit, right? You have three sounds, it, and you have three visual symbols, three letters, three graphemes, three phonemes, there's this coordination. And the the idea is that those kinds of words are actually um, more easier for kids to sound out. And there's lots of there's lots of developmental research that tells us actually that that is the case. And so what people do is they measure the degree to which that occurs. So a word, for example, like eight, the number eight, (laughs) E-I-G-H-T, is not as trans, trans, um, it's not as transparent, right? Because you have um, a bunch of letters and you only have two, two phonemes in that word. Um, and so one thing that people have done is just looked at um, the ratio of phonemes to graphemes. And when it's a perfect one, it's an easier word. And when it's not, it's harder. And the last thing I'll say about de- defining this is that even when I was, you know, in 1999, I made this point, I continue to make this point is that if we, I mean, it's easier when we're talking about decodables like in terms of decodable, not decodable, or this is a decodable text. However, the feature of decodability is a feature that actually can vary on a continuum from a percentage of words that are highly decodable to the reader to fewer words that are decodable to the reader. And so, you know, I like the idea of decodability almost as a meter that you can go that goes up and down. And as a child develops, that meter is going to go down because everything eventually becomes decodable. And so you don't really need to worry about that so much. The issue in English for us is those vowels. And that's why we try to control that. And last point I'll make, and I think this is just 
I think Mel Duke made this point too. It it's always in relation to the reader, right? It's always like, what does the reader know? What can they do? And you know, there. So we just want to remember that um, that it's it's relative to what the child can do. Um, and if we situate that, it's important. Yeah, all of that is so helpful to think about. <laughs> what these decodable texts actually are. What do we mean by this term? Decodability. Super helpful. Um, as you know, everyone's kind of talking about decodable text now, one way or the other. But you know, a lot of people are adopting decodable texts in their classrooms. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about, you know, what should what should teachers be doing with decodable texts? What should students be doing with these decodable texts? What should be happening as we're adopting them? <laughs> right. So I just gave you kind of a like researchy definition there, um, translating mm-hmm. what I know of that. But I want to just also say something about this from the child's point of view. A child who is reading a text where they can actually apply and sound out a word is going to experience the, the amazing, joyful, authentic activity of decoding a word that they could not decode before. That is actually a milestone of childhood. It is up there with um, riding a two-wheeler, getting on the bus by yourself, being potty trained. These are all milestones. And so what the highly decodable text does is it allows children to have that joy. The other side of it is what we know from research is that when you decode words, you do something called orthographically mapping that word. And that process of mapping, if you do it, depending on the child between one and eight times, converts that word into an automatic, we call it a sight word that they can immediately kind and of Heidi and decode. just real quick so on what, that note, there is a, there is a difference yeah. between them just like maybe hearing the word, even if they're looking at it versus them actually decoding it on their own. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful question. I got off topic there, but I now have <laughs> That's to okay. go. We'll come going. back. <laughs> so, so what you're basically saying is, can a child recognize a word without decoding it? Can they come to that word and pronounce it without decoding it? And the answer is yes. Um, Kids can memorize words um, and they do that in the early stages of word recognition. And and Linnea Erie's phase theories tell us that in a pre-alphabetic stage, they can actually remember certain words because they just remember the visual sequence. So they'll remember C has those double circles with the lines in the middle and that snaky thing. <laughs> and they might not even be able to tell you that it's an S and an EE, but they, they know when they look at it, they're supposed to say C. The problem is, of course, that doesn't last because then you have to read B and then you have to read um, other yeah. words. It reminds me of patterns. my son can recognize his name, but that's it. Like he's memorized his name. He doesn't actually know what those letters right. represent. Right. And that's not a bad thing. You can you can do that without the alphabetic principle. That's what you're basically saying. When you decode, you're applying the alphabetic sure. principle. And that's that's what we want kids to do in a decodable is apply. That's what making they me know. think about how like when I'm sure Elliot does this too, Melissa, when Presley was little, she would think every word that began with a P, a capitalized P was her name. Absolutely. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Every E-word is Elliot. Right. That, <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and actually, depending on the child's intelligence, there are some kids who can memorize 
several hundred words like that. And they're, they're okay until about third grade. And then you're like, oh my gosh, they don't know the system. So this is a, this is something I want to point out relative to this. And, and, and Piasta and Hudson said this in a great reading teacher article. They, they, they said, you know, memorizing is not mapping. Mapping is knowing the system of how um, letters correspond to phonemes or groups of letters or even morphemes. So it takes a little longer to learn the whole system, but that system is is then sustainable once you learn it because you couldn't possibly memorize the thousands of words that you're going to have to read. Um, so in decode and highly decodable, they're going to map those words because they have the, the tools to do that and they're those words are going to show up. Um, I can talk more about things that I think are important if you're going to use decodables. I, I'm getting off topic here and there, but I'm so excited. It's fun to kind of do this. I mean, there are so many questions we could ask you. So <laughs> I, yeah, I'm wondering yeah. where you, where do you think it would make sense to go? Like if, do you think it start, it would make sense to start more practice? Let's talk about the, yeah, the, the practical stuff and yeah, then we can pull out the a little classroom. bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as it kind of a court. So I think the first thing that is really important is to understand that you do not want to drop a highly decodable text into a guided reading kind of template or approach to reading. And, um, you know, we, we've kind of been in this kind of uh, approach in this country to how we do um, a small group reading and, and what the text you know, how, how you use the text. If you're using a highly decodable text, you want to make sure you're going to coordinate it with your phonics lesson, right? So that's rule number one. Um, when you teach a pattern, you want to follow that with a, a highly decodable text that allows kids to kind of um, use that pattern. Um, I have um, a five-part phonics lesson kind of that I use in letter lessons that is very much what a lot of other people do because it's research-based. So everybody kind of lands on the same thing. And that's a really good test, by the way, if something's research-based. Is everybody kind of coming to the same conclusion and telling you the research that, if so, it's probably research-based. So my, my lesson is review it, hear it, which is phonemic awareness, decode it, which is decode individual words, spell it, clear those words away and spell individual words and then read it. And that and decodables come at the end where you can apply. The decodables all give you a, a great way to coordinate with your phonics lesson because you just turn the back cover of the book over. It'll tell you this is doing the short or the lax U sound. It'll show you the high frequency words there. So my first one was make sure you 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 actually coordinate with the with the phonics lesson. My second one is um, make sure that you have practiced actually sounding out words that you've modeled blending words for the child that you you know that they can do that um there are exceptional learners frankly i had one of them in my family um, who just need very little exposure to the code and then they get it and you can put a decodable in front of them and they just blend it all together most children don't do that so i like to say no cold decodables meaning you don't just hand it to them and say, yeah, you've been taught the C and you've been taught the A and you've been taught the T. You should be able to do this. You actually have to model blending. Cat, 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 cat. Did you see how I did that, guys? Cat, like the little the little animal, right? So now why don't you try it? Let's, let's say this next word, 
bat, do it with me, bat, bat, get faster, bat, bat, bat. What, what does it mean? And, um, and get kids to do that. The old decodables would have a list of words prior to the story that kids would model, that practice. Um, if you do your lesson the way I do, you've already practiced in the decode it. Yeah. I also recommend something called a book walk and I can talk I'm about so glad that. that you mentioned this idea of like older decodables and newer decodables because I know that, I mean, <laughs> any school may have like piles of books in a far corner of some classroom right. or <laughs> right. closet that is not like they're not maybe the the newest version. Um, and so I'm, right. I'm wondering if you might be able to like very briefly kind of speak to what you would look for, like as a quick snapshot, like if I just like found a pile of decodable books, I mean, other oh, than right. the publishing date, okay. I, I know, yeah. am I throwing you off or is that okay? No, not <laughs> at all. So I, I want to, I, I do want to address kind of I'll, I'll talk about old versus new and then what we yeah. should look for. So just as a kind of interesting aside, I am a child of the 70s and I went to a parochial school and I learned to read on uh, a basal reading series called Lippincott, oh. which is highly decodable. And the sad part about that is it was overdone. And the story that I like to tell is um, around mid first grade, they had this story that came up called the Oogle Google Goblin. <laughs> and it was a real, it was a dumb story. I'm not just going to, I'm not telling you. I mean, it's just a dumb story. And it was like, and the, and then it would come up in second grade and it would come up in third grade. So there was an Google Google in first grade and then second grade and then third grade. And I remember being like, oh my God, it's not that damn, Oogle, sorry, that Google Google Goblin. The problem there, it was complete overkill. I did not need that and neither did anybody right. else. You want to get kids through the vowel patterns. So I guess one thing to look for is um, there should be a weaning away eventually. If you're looking at a basal series, it shouldn't be decodable through forever. But the second thing I'll say about what you should look for in a decodable is um, obviously you should be able to like the the nuts and bolts is you should be able to easily find what patterns are, are represented. There should be a list of the high frequency words are there. Many decodables will have lively topics with a, a handful of less or non-decodable words. So for example, let's say you want to do a cute book on a basketball. Well, you might want to not want to have basket, but you want to put ball, but the kids haven't been taught um, that all sound. So there'll be um, a non-decodable or story word. That's not the end of the world. It's, I mean, the research has suggested often that you can't make a perfectly 100% decodable. So make sure it doesn't have to be completely decodable. Heidi, um, can I ask you real quick I've there? Because I've seen people like kind of arguing about this, like, no, it needs to be 95%. No, it needs to be 90, 80, yeah. 85. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I, I, I would just say, you know, that's a nuts and bolts. How did you define it in your research? I can think of two studies that um, did did have 100% decodables in a kind of manipulation. And um, it really came down to how they, they actually um, mm -hmm. defined that. Um, there's, a, there's a big study in the year 2000 that um, Foreman and all did on the year 2000 basils, which were, were designed to be highly decodable. And even in those 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 basils, the top ones reached maybe seventy percent. Okay. So um, I think that's um, a bit of a holy grail. I don't know that it's necessary either developmentally, but I would also caveat that with 
Some researchers have done 100% decodable in the way that they define it. And, you know, it's, it's about digging into that. Um, but I don't think in terms of the classroom, I don't think you should, I don't think you need to be that stringent, right? That's not my okay. perspective. But, and and to, to, to go back to your question is, if I'm a teacher and I'm looking at trying to decide whether or not I should use this highly decodable text, and I'm trying to think about how much of it is decodable, what I would think about is this. On the back cover, do they tell me the patterns? Are those patterns showing up in the text? On the back cover, do they tell me the high-frequency words? Are those fre- high-frequency words showing in the text? On the back cover, do they tell me that there are a few story words or less decodable words? And do those show up? If I see those story words, I'm not going to freak out and put it down and throw it across the room and say, you are deaf to me. This is not decodable. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. And I think what is what you meant, what you said before, have I taught these sound spelling patterns to my students, right? Right. Have I taught these? Can they decode the words in this that I'm looking at on the back of the book? And if the answer is yes, then it's it's probably a good choice, right? That's. Okay. It, it's, okay. It's absolutely a good choice. Thank you. So, and then, so, yeah, so coordinate it with your phonics instruction, but, you know, it don't, ju- you know, it, it don't just turn them loose in a book. They have to be able yes, to blend words. Uh, make sure that they know the high frequency words that are in the book. Um, here's another, one of the things that I like to do, and this is just my idea. Not everybody does this, but I like the idea of what I call a book walk, not a picture walk. But you walk through a, the, the, the highly decodable text and you kind of just ask kids if you see words that they know. Hey, we've been studying app. Do you see any words with? Yeah. And do you see other words? I see some ah words like the octopus. You got. Oh, yeah, there it is. And what about this word? Like I was reading a book with kids and um, the word still was in that book. And I knew I hadn't taught that consonant cluster and the ST. Um, So I was on the verge of just kind of modeling that blending, but I just brought them to that word and said, Hey, what, what do you know about this word guys? Let's look at this word. And still, 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 is that still, is that word still? So they did a little bit of work. I love that notion of them doing a little work. And then we read the book and that, what that does is it amplifies a little more fluency so that it's not grinding <laughs> through the text and stopping and, and starting. You, I, you showed a um, video of this at the yeah. the Reading League conference of you doing it with students. And yeah. I, when I watched it, I thought, I was like, well, this is really helpful for students, just like you mentioned. But I also thought it's so helpful for the teacher, right? For them to, for the teacher to be able to see like, oh, what, what words are they recognizing already before we even start this? Which words right. are they not right. <laughs> able to pronounce? I was like, this... That's just such a, a quick, easy, helpful right. thing for teachers to do. You know, if you, that that's also developmental. You could be at a place where, you know, you've done a lot of those lax vowels. You've done a lot of, uh, you're, you're into working on consonant clusters or blends. And you know, these kids can burn through a, a CVC word. And you know, you really don't have to do that. You can just preview it and hand it to the kids. So that's not the, the worst thing either. Um, the book walk, I think, is most useful at the very early stages of introducing um, a highly decodable. Um, here's another one that I think is overlooked that I really think is an important thing to do when you're working with highly decodables. Make sure that children understand the meanings of uncommon mm. words. 
So I don't know if you noticed that, but when I was modeling and those of you who can't see us, I was actually modeling uh, how to decode a word. And when I said the word cat and I said cat, oh, I kind of changed my expression showing that I understood the meaning of the word. It's really important to, as you're modeling decoding, to demonstrate to the kids that you get to the meaning of the word. That's actually scientifically based. What we know is our meaning processor influences our ability to decode. And there needs to be that light bulb moment when, bing, oh, I know what that word means. So basically, very important that children come to, uh, this is what the word means. And when when I decode a word, what I do is I put it into context and demonstrate the meaning. So I say cat, like a furry animal with whiskers. Now, what happens when a child is reading a book like, let's say The Gum Hunt, which is um, a book um, by Just Right Readers, which is a cute little decodable series. Um, There's a word, I think in that one, the word lug, right? Easily to decode word, but a lot of kids may not know that word. So that kind of word would be a tier two word. The child has a ready concept. It means to carry something that's really heavy, something that weighs you down. And I would spend a maximum of two minutes just telling them what that word means so that when they come to it, they go, lug, oh, lug, like I lugged my backpack. It was heavy. Um, it's very it's very important that you do that. Um yeah, there's those are I can keep going here with um, ideas about do's if you want me to. I love um, this. I think know. it's so helpful. I mean, if it's okay, okay with you, I could listen. I mean, you, I love your animation too. It's it's obviously love. You love what you do. Okay. So I, I think okay. it would be helpful. Okay. It's helping me. I especially I love that idea of a book walk early on and, and just also connecting to I think that's something that doesn't always happen with decodables is connecting to the meaning and that's equal, mm-hmm. uh, equally as important. And I'm just saying like generally from what I've seen on social, I'm not, you know, making any assumptions um, about anywhere or anyone in particular, but it's very well, it um, is like driven some, by reading the word. Well, yeah, I was say some people don't like decodable text because they think it doesn't get to the meaning, right? Right, right. You're just well, decoding nonsense well, words. Right. R- well, right. So um, that's, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's address, let's address, let's, let's address that, that critique of co- yeah. decodable, highly decodable, because it's not um, an in- inaccurate critique. And that's why I like this idea of a continuum, right? If you're thinking about it, a continuum, then you can have something that's so highly decodable that it's silly, mm-hmm. right? you know? The, the, the pig did a jig with a wig on the rig. <laughs> Go pig with the wig on the jig in the fit. You know I mean? It, it, it's just <laughs> stupid, but you don't have to have a decodable like that. Right. right? So I also, um, I'm a, I'm an advisor for curriculum associates and they have a beautiful series of highly decodables that go and like, they have this one called dance. And so the sentence varies. We don't have to have, um, five ig words in one sentence, right? And my experience clinically, and this is not research-based, is that when you get that kind of ig, 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 the kids just bog down and they they get bored and they chug along and it's too much. So that's why you want to be in touch with other features and 
and something that's too highly decodable can go off the rails. In terms of the kind of the, the legitimate critique that there's not a whole lot of depth of meaning there, I just think that's a critique that you could make of almost anything that you're trying to use with a young reader. I mean, let's face it, you know, even in these less decodable, non-decodable books, there are only a hundred words. A lot of them are built around a repeated sentence. Um, I like my coat. I like my shoes. I like my mittens. I mean, what do you, where are you going to go there? I mean, you're not, it's not like you're going to be inferencing or finding a theme or right. thinking about figurative language. To me, that's not the, really the place to do a lot of deep comprehension. Um, you do want to stop the kids and say, okay, now what was going on in this story? Dance. Oh, the kids were dancing. Yep. They were tapping. Yep. They were bopping. Yep. But you're not going to be 20 minutes on a a comprehension right. lesson, that's an, that's literally an insult to what kids really can do and think. That's not what's slowing them down developmentally. So that's, to me, that's just a misuse of highly decodables. But um, I mean, I would agree with the critique that, that highly decodables can get like <laughs> silly. They, they can, that's totally accurate, but you know, yeah. I think it's a balance is what I'm hearing you say. Like it's not, over, you're, you're, like you said in that meter, you're not over overdoing it, but then you're not you're not making it too difficult. So right? what I would say, yeah, yeah. So what I would say, I, I'm I'll tell you truthfully, the term balance has never resonated with me, even when it was in vogue, <laughs> because my from my perspective, no, from my perspective, um, uh, developmentally, kids need an imbalance of things. Okay. Yeah. Developmentally, an early reader is going to need more code instruction, and a fourth grader is going to need some multisyllabic, multimorphemic, but we're digging into some basic literal comprehension. In high school, total imbalance, all <laughs> comprehension and vocabulary, yeah. really, little morphological stuff thrown in there. We're working on critical literacy. Can I analyze? Can things intersect? Can I critique of author's viewpoint? Can I take um, a primary source in history and contrast it to a law and contrast it to a letter written by um, a, a person who held enslaved people versus a letter from an enslaved person? And can I critically interrogate somebody like Thomas Jefferson who wrote all these beautiful things, but then he lived? That's, yeah. So balance is, is I'm more about developmental developmental. So what I would say in terms of de yeah. highly decodable is that you would move that decodable scale um, slightly higher for kids who are earlier in that decoding sequence, and then it would start to back off. And, you know, at some levels, the text is not going to be balanced per se. It's going to be more highly decodable because that's what the kids need. But then as they move in, it's going to kind of go down. But I will say this, Lori, because I think I, I kind of jumped on your no, use of balance. I mean, it, is, it was a tear. I should but, but, probably but, but, just but, but, eliminate what, it altogether from my vocabulary. Yeah, no, no, no. But, but what I, but what I will say. I was thinking like, like, I think the, like if, the, if it had big and wig in it, it's not like, we're not like, oh gosh, I can't believe the author, or I can't believe this book used these words. Like it's, but if, if it's like right. big, wig, jig, fig, pig, 
but right like overdoing Overdue. it yeah so Overkill. i was thinking that's where i was yes, going with yes. it but i t- i loved how you explained and <laughs> you like took it and went 10 times further that was amazing well that's just an yeah, that's just an yeah. idea that i think really needs to be out there in terms of how we're using terms uh teachers love balance because it feels it good means it everything's good. okay it it feels good it's got a psychological resonance um, but I just don't know that it's a paradigm, frankly, that really works. Other people would totally agree with, disagree with me. I don't find it if you're taking a developmental s- stance. And in terms of text, um, I, I mean, I guess my point is that it, these things will go up and down. And as a teacher, you want to pay attention to what's really high and is it too much? And what's low. And I will tell you, it is the hardest thing in the entire world to write these texts that have some level of control in them. Um, And there's a whole series, if you really want to understand kind of pitfalls in decodable text, there's a great book by Wiley Blevins called Choosing and Using Decodable Text. And he lists, yeah, he would be a great person to have on the pod. He also did his dissertation on this. And um, he basically identifies those in a very specific way. I've called out a few of them, but he's really specific. And he also has a lot of great ideas about extending the use of them um, and has worked with, you know, schools and urban centers that have a lot of kids who need a lot of help with learning to I'm read. I'm so glad you mentioned this book. Melissa and I are going to have to order it right now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. And Wiley is really great too. I'm sure you've We've not him. had him yet, but we have him on our list. Yeah. He's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was right after you, Heidi. Heidi, Heidi Ann, sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, other things that I would say <clears throat> to make sure you do, of course, so define those uncommon words. Um I also think there's some study that tells us that fluency will wane when children are reading highly decodable. There's other studies that tell us the Saha study, for example, suggests that actually a transparent word will actually lead to uh, more fluency. So the fluency won't wane. And there was a study that was was done by Compton et al. who looked at really it came down to multisyllabic words that found there was a fluency compromise. But I think... um, the point is that fluency might kind of decline slightly when kids are, and I say slightly in that you don't want them just struggling through each word, but developmentally, that's where they are. They're decoding. And developmentally, um, Jean Charles called that the glued to the print stage. So that's the work of their development. That is the work of what they're doing. And sounding out those words, being glued to the print is what they're going to do. So don't panic if they can't do it. And then that leads to the second one. And everybody who teaches little kids knows this, reread them, right? Reread them so that they get more fluent, right? Send them home, right? I mean, um, Just Right Reader has this adorable little, it looks like a gift bag of highly decodable books. It's the <laughs> cutest thing that the, the founder of that, that company was a mother herself. And she's, they, they go home. So, so I love that, um, as well. Um, so that would be a, a, a suggestion. Um, you can also differentiate how kids read or use decodables. 
Um, I told you about the book walk where you kind of lead, make sure the kids can decode the words, but later in development, that might not be necessary. Kids could go off on their own. Um, a couple of kind of don'ts, which are kind of obvious, but I, I have to tell you, I've done some of these don'ts. <laughs> <probably> and <laughs> like, right. I, I think to be honest with you, I don't think many of us know how really influenced we have been by the kind of dominating uh, instructional paradigm that has been operating for about 15 to 20, maybe even more years. So this is one that relates to that. Do not pre-read the entire decodable for the kids. And I will say that in my in letter lessons, I have that as one option, which I'm working on a revision. Mm-hmm. So my thinking has changed about that. If you're pre-reading the whole book for them, what? why are you doing that? The whole idea is that they can read yeah. the book. So don't, don't do that thing where we sit down and we do the book walk and then I read the whole text to you and then I hand it to you. That's actually not I would not imagine decoding. that's where that's students just, would try and like, or some would like catch on to the game, right? Of like, okay, she's going to, she's going to read it. I'm going to try and memorize as much as I can so that when it's my turn, I'll know the words. <laughs> well, and, and, and the design of the book, the design of the less decodable books is exactly geared. It, it basically the design is is facilitating that right. that kind of approach. It's basically a repeated sentence stem or, or or a rhyme, so that you actually can decode it, not decode it. You're not mapping. You right. can just memorize it, and so you can go. I like my coat, and for those of you who don't see, I've got my hands over my ha- eyes. I like my coat. I like my mittens. I like my shoes. You know, and I'm not even right. looking. Or you can just look at the picture. You fill in and the you blank. Just yeah. The stem. <laughs> Right, right. Um, and I'll I'll caveat by saying, and again, this is a big debate, and I don't know about research in this respect, and there will be people who will disagree. I don't think that little kind of highly predictable is the end of the world. I like that for developing um, a concept of word and being able to track um, words and you know, kind of at a, at a a stage before kids can kind of decode. Now there are a lot of people who don't, don't agree with me, but I've done work on um, concept of word as has Daryl Morris, as has um, Kevin Flanagan and many others. And I'm not opposed to using that type of text. I just wouldn't use it at a stage where I'm trying to get kids to sound out words. So it goes back to the purpose. Aha. Yeah. And it's not a bad purpose at a certain stage for the text to be a place to generalize what you've learned about um, grapheme phonemes or sound spellings. That's a good purpose. It shouldn't be a forever yeah, purpose. Right. Right. I actually had, I actually had somebody text me this morning. This is so funny. A teacher friend of mine. And um, she, there was a quote that somebody was using and it's always scary when that happens. Cause you think, Oh gosh, I hope this <laughs> is a good one. And at the end of the quote, it said something like, decodables should be a means to an end, not a life sentence. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I love the kind of idea there, right? That it is a means to an end. And I was thinking to myself, did I write life (laughs) sentence? Did I write that? I was like, oh my gosh, did I write that? Like, and it was kind of like what, not what we're, we're talking about texts as if they're prisons. Like, no, that's not what I meant. Um, I, I probably would have said there are means to an end, like training wheels or, um, 
you know, yeah. pull-ups. I mean, I don't know why I'm, we have new babies in my family, so that's I get, where I'm going with this. I get Sorry the about that. It helps me. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, but so the so the point is that, um, you know, they're, they're you plug them in and, and they are contrived. Let's face it, but so is the other type of less decodable text. They're just contrived on another level because when we go to read Harry Potter, it's not, uh, you know, I like my <laughs> wand. I like my um, my cake, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like that. That is very true. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was another kind of don't, and this is kind of obvious, um, but don't expect kids to read these silently. You know, um, they, they're obviously not something that kids. I don't know that that's silently. obvious. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> I agree. Can you share why? Oh, Okay, well, this is actually from Julia Lindsay's book. This is, I mean, this is a point we probably all know, but Julia Lindsay has written a wonderful book called. Oh yeah, um, we love Leading her. We have to about it. <laughs> I have it right here. Yes, yes, I she's great. I was, I was actually. <laughs> yeah, and she has a website called Beyond Decodables. Um, I was actually on her her dissertation committee. I was invited yeah. as an outside chair, so that was, I mean, not chair, sorry, as a member. Anyway, but she said. Um, you know, like it actually, if you go into a um, a beginning reading classroom, which may be second or third grade right now, and you hear everybody silently reading, that's a big red flag because at the beginning of, of reading, kids have to really say it out loud and hear themselves and they're, when they're in that glued to the print stage. So you shouldn't um, necessarily hear that. Um, I would also say another do is embrace the joy of the accomplishment and let kids really show it off. Right. Um, don't say, well, this is a dumb decodable book that doesn't have a lot of, you know, like be like, Oh my gosh, you, you read that word share in that celebration as you would with any other celebration. I mean, we don't, we don't say to little kids, well, yeah, you rode your bike with your training wheels. Right. I mean, you know, we, 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 we wouldn't say that, right? Right. Like, yeah, well, whatever. Wait till I take the training wheels off. Okay. You know, like, so in, embrace that and find the joy. Um, other things I think you should look for in, in decodables. And again, Curriculum Associates has this beautiful program called Magnetics and, and they have just gorgeous stuff. Um, and they have these themes that really are themes that a modern child would enjoy. Um, Themes around even like video games and sports and and things that children will naturally do and children um, across contexts, children who are in different places, um, you know, and I think that's a point that the kind of Julia has brought to mind is that we also want highly decodables to be culturally relevant to the children who are reading them. She designed that her beyond decodables are designed um, for the Boston schools to kind of have some resonance with kids in those settings. Um, and you see things ab about public transit and parks and sidewalks and, and things that children in that kind of setting. So we want kids to see themselves. And what we do know from research is that um, your knowledge of words does actually um, contribute to your ability to decode. Now, what most heavily contributes to your ability to code if you're a reader and this is from a series of studies by Stacy. Sorry, if you're a reader, it's going to be your knowledge of of, of uh, spelling patterns. It's going to also be your vocabulary. It's going to be your your fluency. 
in the book, the things that are going to contribute to your ability to read it are going to be the transparency of the words, the decodability and, and the match to your knowledge, the frequency of a word, right? So in English, which is a, a deep orthography where there's a little more complexity, we do have an alphabetic system, but it's complex. In a deep orthography, frequency effects are more influential. So if a word appears a lot, that's going to help you um, decode it. So that's why you have to have highly frequent words mixed in with decodability because that's a, a huge factor in decoding. Also, what will influence your ability to decode, and this is in, especially with English learners, is the degree to which the word is imageable. And by imageable, we mean it invokes a, a, a visual image. So a word like blue, if you're not colorblind, will invoke a color. A word like run will invoke a picture of somebody running. So it's not necessarily noun-based, right? Like a word like shirt will mm -hmm. invoke a picture of a shirt. But anything that you can create a mental image, that's going to actually also affect your decoding. So what I'm saying in terms of, Lori, what you your point is that actually meaning does influence decoding. Um, it, it, is, it is a factor. And I'd have to look at the research to kind of see where it like how much variance it, it predicts, but it is a fact. That's so cool to yeah, know. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have any other do's or don'ts for us before we um, run out no, of time? No, no. And I've <laughs> been kind of, yeah, I mean, I would like to add this. I've been kind of slapped on the hand before for having a kind of do's and don'ts kind of, kind of thing. And, um, you know, I, I get it that lots of things kind of vary within different instructional mm -hmm. contexts. I actually think a do's and don'ts kind of approach is just a useful rhetorical kind of structure to kind of yeah. get messages out. It's easy for out. teachers to take in, but, right? It's like, <laughs> right, right. Except, and, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And with explanation mm -hmm. and discussion and an intelligent teacher, you know, people can sort out like a, an intelligent teacher who's listening to this podcast or reading a blog on the do's and don'ts, which is soon to come out, by the way, but a, an intelligent teacher that's reading that um, knows that that is going to be contextual and will use that and apply it intelligently, right? They're not going to just, these aren't rules, right? They're just ideas. Um, and anybody who's vesting in reading blogs or podcasts is an intelligent yeah, teacher. Yeah, they're, they're wanting to learn, right? Yeah. And that's why we're all here. Right, really. I mean, right. We're so grateful right. that you're here sharing all of this with us. And I think, you know, going back to that idea of what the purpose is, that I think would inform how we would read a do's or don'ts kind of blog. Right. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so, you know, I'll also end with this. Um, people like me who have spent, you know, 23 years doing high, you know, doing higher ed work, you know, research, applied studies, teacher preparation, doctoral work, you know, all that. We are, are really expert in these very narrow and specific things. I'm expert in literacy at the beginning stages. And my two areas are really beginning reading phonics and reader text matching. That's really <laughs> narrow. And if you think about what a, a teacher has to do, it's mm -hmm. much more than that. And what I understand is that I am actually, I understand the classroom and I work with kids, but I am not expert in, I don't have thousands of hours with little children. I get it. So 
So there's an expertise that I just don't possess. And I love it when teachers um, challenge my ideas or my interpretations, um, obviously with a little bit of softness, but I mean, it, it allows me to engage in different kind of thoughts and it's off. It just sends me back to the research usually to just kind of see, well, wait a minute. Yeah. So. Yeah. We, we love that conversation back and forth between research and practice because yeah, um, I, yeah. I forget who we talked to. I was trying to remember Lori, but someone else we talked to said the same thing, which was like, I'm doing research, but like what happens in the classroom is a totally different experience. And so that, that whoever it was, I forget who, but <laughs> they said the same thing. Right. Right. And, Yeah. And I'll just kind of add this. And I think I've said this like, um, you know, this, this focus on applying reading science um, is not to be a choke collar for teachers. And I'm really uh, frustrated with this idea that, you know, research would be a way to manage teachers in some way. I mean, I just, so that's not, that's a really poor kind of tone that I've seen out there. Um, and, and that is not, you know, that's not the way it should be. I think that's important to say. So thank you. All right. All right. I don't have anything else. I guess I can leave. (laughs) I don't know how it works. I love this. So we, I think we have one uh, important question to ask you. We usually do more than one, but we've kept one for a whole lot longer than we typically do. So sure. Sure. um, We're going to ask you one question. It uh, is just meant to be reflective and and rapid Mm fire-ish. Why do you do what you love for literacy? Um. I have people in my family who um, struggle to learn to read and um, I'm passionate about, about, about that. Um, And I, um, I also just derive um, a lot of uh, fulfillment from doing this work, um, both intellectually and then personally in terms of, knowing that I'm having some small impact. Well, thank you so much for everything that you do. And it was great to meet you and talk to you today. Yeah, Yeah. fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for pushing our thinking. Thank you for pushing back. Thank you for explaining more. You did so much today and we are so grateful. Great. Thanks thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.